we begin a new series on the book of Revelation, and before we jump into it today, I want to ask a kind of a obscure, but maybe a patently obvious question. What does it mean to be blessed? Talk to me. What does it mean to be blessed? It's one of those Christian words that means everything, and unfortunately probably then nothing. What does it mean to be blessed besides I bless you when you sneeze? Gifted, good. What else? Forgiven. Forgiven. You're blessed because you're forgiven. What else? Peace. Peace. What else? Favor. Favor. Favor is a very good Old Testament word for God's favor as he blesses us. What else? Praise. Praise. Sorry, over here. The presence of joy. Provisions. Provisions. In the Old Testament, what did blessing primarily mean? I mean, two things in the Old Testament. Don't you hate questions like that? It means two things. You're going to get it wrong. <laughs> Fertility, number one. If you could have children or your flocks and herds produced, that was a blessing of God. And the second was the acquisition of land. Because if you acquired more land for your prospering flock, herd, family, you were able to prosper financially. So in the Old Testament language, blessing almost always had the appointment of a financial prospering blessing. In the New Testament, it changes quite a bit. In fact, the NIV uses the word happy when it it records the Beatitudes. Happy are those, which sounds a little bit cheeky, but it's actually a pretty good word for how blessing is used. Blessing is one of those Christian words that because it means everything, it can tend to mean nothing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. We don't go there. We think of blessing on the positive side of the ledger, not the negative, difficult, challenging side of the ledger. And I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this introduction today, because it's important to understand what it means to be blessed. Some of us grew up with a prosperity theology background, or we were exposed to it, that if you do these things, God will bless you. If you give, God might multiply that blessing. And I will tell you on the front end, I think it's half accurate to be a prosperity theologian. And we'll talk about that more at the end. But the idea of if we do something, will God bless us is the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind. Um, Today we start on what will be four chapters in the book of Revelation. It will take us up through Easter. And uh, we're excited about the study about the seven churches. And um, each of these churches has a storyline that we'll look into some detail. Let me begin by reading a paragraph from uh, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson's excellent book, Talk Through the Bible. Just as Genesis is the book of beginnings, Revelation is the book of consummation. In it, the divine program of redemption is brought to fruition. And the holy name of God is vindicated before all creation. Although there are numerous prophecies in the Gospels and the Epistles, Revelation is the only New Testament book that focuses primarily on prophetic events. Revelation centers around visions and symbols of the resurrected Christ, who alone has authority to judge the earth, remake it, and rule it in righteousness. John the Apostle pens the book, likely A.D. 95. He has been in political prison and exile on the island of Patmos. 
At that time, Patmos was a volcanic landscape. It was not a resort. It was essentially a Roman penal colony. And more than likely, John was sent there because his preaching and teaching was an affront to Rome. The particular uh, reign of Titus Flavius Domitian would have been the the ruler at that time, and he was threatened by John, didn't like John, considered him a political enemy of some kind, and so he exiles him to Patmos. It's on Patmos where the Holy Spirit reveals to him the revelation that you have in your hand in the final book of your New Testament. Domitian dies in 96 AD, and John is then able to go back to Ephesus after his release. Revelation is addressed to seven historic churches that were in Asia Minor in the day. Today it's Turkey. And he interestingly uh, speaks to them from a counterclockwise geographic line. So if you looked at a map, as you see each of the seven churches, he starts at the bottom and goes counterclockwise to the top. Ephesus, Smyrna, not the one here, but the one in Asia. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, certainly not the one in PA, and Laodicea. Each of these churches was comprised of a people group, not only from a Jewish background that had come to Christ, but Gentiles who'd come to Christ. They were a representation of Turkey of that, of that time period, of Asia Minor, that time period. And keep in mind, these are a group of sinners. Each of these seven churches has issues. One is a bit of an outlier, but all of them have issues. And the message is confrontive. The message is hard. The messages spew you out of my mouth. The message is you've lost your first love. The messages are hard. And Christ is speaking to his seven churches in Asia Minor. And each of those messages is not only a signature to that church, but it is a message for you and me. As prophetic literature, we'll talk a little bit about how we understand it and apply it, but the message is as relevant the day John penned it as it is today when we read it. Keep in mind also that Greece and Rome are superpowers of the day. Uh, By this, we understand that not only did they impose heavy taxation on their people in these churches, in these areas, but they also had military garrisons. Think of it this way. When you go into Syria, when you go into the Middle East, you have to occupy with a sizable force of people to keep things in check. And then what do you have to do? You have to tax them like crazy to support your infrastructure. Nothing new under the sun. This is what happened from antiquity. So in antiquity, the garrisons would be like a military base, an air force base, an army base. It was established in Asia Minor, and the taxes from Rome were punitive on the people. Sounds a little bit like America at different times. The taxation and the burdens heavy. And so we had to pay Caesar uh, because we live under this government that has grown to be so large. The military garrisons and taxations were concerned about one thing, Rome. Not those people groups, Rome. It was a time when it was okay, under liberty we might think of it that way, you could practice your faith. America used to extol this, you can have your faith under a free country. Rome used to be that way, but Rome changed. Revelation was written to these churches that were under persecution, they were embroiled in sin, living in a decadent culture, rampant with idolatry, a lot like today. Not much changes from history. We don't learn that well. The purpose of Revelation is to comfort those churches, the believers individually who are trying to live a righteous life, and also to correct those who are living poorly and to warn and admonish the ones who are evil, who are corrupt, affecting his church. The Revelation has a lot of theology in it, but I want to speak just very briefly about two large scopes of theology. The first is Christology. 
There is no clearer book in the Bible that teaches about the person and work of Jesus Christ than the book of Revelation, even including the gospel accounts. The revelation is a revelation about and the person of Jesus Christ. It reveals to us all that we don't know from the gospel accounts. That's why it's such an important theological book. Christ is the lamb who is slain. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist identified him. Now he's the lamb who's slain. He's the lamb who brings righteousness. He's the lamb who brings wrath. He is also the good and the great shepherd of his people. John Walbert writes, if for no other reason, the book is important as the final chapter in scripture as the self-disclosure of God through Jesus Christ. You want to know what Christ is like after his ascension? Look at the book of Revelation. We have more Christology here than any other book of the Bible. Secondly, God's wrath and ultimate justice. Um, Unfortunately, we don't like wrath. Christianity has become somewhat domesticated in the last couple of decades, especially in America. We don't like to talk about hell. We don't talk about wrath of God. We don't talk about punishment. We're all love. Love's going to win. It's all going to be fine in the end. That's balderdash biblically. Scripture is very clear about the wrath of God that will come. And a good way to keep this in mind is to think of a coin, a two-sided coin, that God's love is on one side and God's wrath is on the other. God's love is a two-sided coin. It is not human love. It's not love. It's all going to work out in the end palaver. God's love brings wrath. And if you don't understand that, just think of the cross. The crucifixion event, the death of Jesus Christ, is the ultimate expression of the wrath of God poured out on his son whom he loved, his only son. Because only if God pours out his wrath on his son can you and I have a way to heaven. God has to punish evil. He has to address wicked. He doesn't sort of erase it. It's not out of his mind. He doesn't do like a parent does and says, oh, I'm not going to discipline my child for that issue. God is perfect and holy and righteous and just. And this book is very clear about God's love, but also his wrath and ultimate justice. The great tribulation, the battles, the serpent of old, the great harlot, all the minions that are aligned with Satan who will be punished in the end, who will go into eternal punishment and final and complete judgment. Now there are many other issues theologically that John addresses but we won't delve into. Homardiology, the doctrine of sin, angelology, a lot of angel activity in the book. Anthropology, the nature of man, the theology, the study of man. A soteriology, how a person is saved, how did Christ accomplish salvation. Ecclesiology, how his church works. We're going to talk about seven churches in this series. And eschatology, future events. So it is a book chock full of many powerful theological issues. Again, John Walvoord, attempts at the exposition are almost without number. Yet there continues the widest divergence in interpretation. If you go to Amazon, if you go to Google today and you search the uh, books on Revelation, you'll find fanciful interpretive nonsense books to you know, massive critical tomes. It's inexhaustible what's been written about this book. And when Walvoord made that statement, the widest divergence of interpretations, the worldwide internet was not even working except for the military. Now, throughout histories, uh, history, scholars have looked at Revelation through a set of lenses. And let's just say there's six technical. I'm going to condense them to four very briefly. How do we look at the book of Revelation is the question. How do we understand it? 
How do we interpret it? These are the four main ways uh, scholars, theologians, people who read the Bible look at Revelation. The first one is the historists. The historist. The historist view of Revelation is simply a prophetic panorama. What I mean by that is they look at Revelation from the first century until the second coming of Christ and they stop. The first century, so after Christ's life, death, burial, from that point on until his second return, and then they said the book stops in its application. The historicist view is generally held by our Reformed friends, and you may have come from a Reformed background. I have a great love and affection for a lot of Reformed theology. This is an area that I have a difference of opinion on. Generally, Reformers will hold this view, and one of the corrections, the reasons they do this is wise, pragmatic, is because there's been so many people who misinterpret the book. So if we segment the book to only applying to a specific time, then we aren't prone to reinterpret it incorrectly. Makes sense, which is a pragmatic solution. Think if you remember uh, some of you are old enough to the 88 reasons for the rapture in 1988. The guy was a scientist, a brilliant guy, a mathematician, and of course it didn't happen, so he wrote the book 89 reasons for 1989, and he did a several, several attempts like this, and eventually, uh, if memory serves, he basically said, I gave it my best shot. Um, the, the problem with those type of interpretations are we don't want to play foul at people because if you were living, as we'll look at a minute during John's time, if you were living during World War II, as I've stressed many times, you thought this might be the end. Uh, some of us can be fear-mongering with ISIS and think this might be the end. I mean, after all, it's the Middle East. They hate the Jew. After all, that kind of lines up. There was a time when the reformers thought that the Pope was the Antichrist. So historically, these things come and go all the time. So the historic view segments it so that it's not misinterpreted. That's one of the pragmatic outcomes. The problem, however, is what do you do with different interpretations on the tribulation, on the millennium? Is it literal or real or not? What do you do with the Antichrist? What do you do with the second coming? What do you do with the eternal state, the great white throne of judgment? And so you can segment it and say it only really applies to this period of time. It's a panorama view. It doesn't really apply. And which, by the way, my, I have many Reformed brother friends who are far more nationally prominent than I ever will be. And we have this great sparring about it. And I say, when you start teaching Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelation expositionally, then you and I can have a conversation about prophecy. Because they'll never touch those three books. Because in the Reformed a hit family, typically you're going to stop at those areas because they hold a different view of New Testament prophetic literature. Secondly is the idealist view. And just very quickly, this is where it's primary, primarily symbolic. It's a picture of God versus Satan, of good versus evil. You don't hear a lot about it, but it comes and goes especially with liberal churches. The third is the so-called preterist view. This has gained a lot of popularity among young college students and grad students today. Uh, again, some of the reformers lean this way a little bit. The preterist view says the prophecies were fulfilled in 70 A.D., and some of you know a little bit about history, but Titus is the Roman leader who comes in and destroys the temple complex and tears down Jerusalem. And so that would be, uh, some would call it the abomination of desolation. That period, that event was so dramatic and so horrible to the Jew. So historians said, well, that must be the fulfillment of Revelation. So the preterist view is that destruction of the temple complex and Titus was the instigator. Uh, there are also variations on this theme where they see allegory and symbolism. Uh, the early church conflicts, they would somehow glom and say, well, so those conflicts for the early church were part of the story of Revelation. 
um, it's gained, again, popularity in recent years. As a side note, let me take you back into John's time. It's 95, AD 95. By AD 118, something happens, and you can read about this historically at great length. There's tomes written about this. There, were, there was a man by the name of Simon Bar Kokhba. Simon Bar Kokhba. He was a Jew. Uh, during this time, we had Hadrian was the Roman emperor. Hadrian did not like the Jews. And there was a window in time when he said, you all can come back to Jerusalem, like expatriates. You can come back to the holy city. But even though Hadrian allowed them to do that, he reconstructed a temple near the Solomonic, so-called Solomonic temple site, that was a temple to Jupiter. Didn't win a lot of friends and influence people with the Jews when he did this. This is our land, this is our temple complex, not one to be, and when we go to Israel, we'll talk about Hadrian and all that he accomplished. He was another great builder. So Hadrian does this, and as the Jews are immigrating back, he changes his mind. And he says, after all, you're not really welcome here. Not only does he change his mind, he kills 580,000 of them as they return. He he goes and butchers and destroys about 1,000 villages and townships around the area. And Simon Bar Kokhba, the son of Kokhba, Simon Bar Kokhba comes along and he instigates a revolt. Some of the Jewish historians call this the third, some call it the second, it depends on their viewpoint. But it's a three and a half year long battle, very well documented where Simon Bar Kokhba tries to fight Hadrian. It's like you know, taking the, the fifth grade class to go fight the full forces of Rome. You're not going to win. And they get decimated. Well, after this, um, as sort of a stick in the eye, Hadrian banishes the Jews, and he takes the land and segments in segments, and he calls it Syria Palestinia. Hadrian, the Roman emperor, names it Syria Palestinia. Why do I tell you this? Palestinia is the slur on Philistine, more than likely. Palestinia becomes Palestine. So prior to Hadrian, there was no Syria. There was no Palestine. So now you begin to understand why all the fighting, whose land is it, will continue until Christ returns. It will never be resolved by any military power or force. It will, it will wax and wane as long as time goes on until Christ returns. There is no solution. Well, All that happens in 118. Now keep this in perspective. If you're a believer in Christ and all this is going on in Israel and Jerusalem and all these people are being slaughtered and murdered, could this guy be the Antichrist? Could this, this be the end times? They're killing God's chosen people in God's land? Two and two make four, right? Point being for this little history discourse over here. There's nothing new. There's nothing new. What we're seeing today is nothing new. We're poor in our history, so we're shocked and surprised and abhorred when bad things happen like ISIS and ISIL and and Al-Qaeda and the destruction of temple complexes and fighting and beheading. And we're all, listen, it's been going on since antiquity. And it will go on until the Savior returns. There's no human solution to some of these issues. Well, back to our views, how we, look at in, how we look at Revelation. The futurist view holds that the book will unfold in the future. A view I particularly hold to, you may not, you might be of the reform camp or others, that's okay. We can still be friends, we can still have fellowship, you can still buy me dinner. I don't care at all. We can still be friends. Um, the futurist view is these things are still going to take place. That they have not happened as they have been unfolded in the book of Revelation. The second coming of Christ is literal. 
The thousand-year reign is literal. The schemes of pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill will be debated endlessly until time ends. But the point is, I believe there's a literal process and a fulfillment. And that's the way we will be expounding the text. We're not mad about it. We're not angry about it. We're not saying everybody else is wrong. Implicitly, we are, but not technically. Um, It's okay (laughs) if you hold those views. Two main reasons I want you to think about why this is an important view. Number one... The historical, grammatical, literary approach to the Bible, or what we call a hermeneutic, how we read this book. We read it in the historical context in which it was written. We use plain grammar, common sense language. What did the language mean to the audience that first heard it or read it? How do we then understand that and apply it today? Historical, grammatical, literary, hermeneutic. It's how we study the Bible. This is why I don't like words like reformed or dispensational or covenant or charismatic or Catholic or Baptist. Those are labels that man has has glommed onto for all kinds of reasons. I would say if this is the revealed word of God, it is the very word of God in print that we have in all our devices and our versions and iterations of it. If God spoke it, it's accurate, it's inerrant, which we can talk about for another time, Um, then we want to read it in the context it was written, the audience who first received it, what did it mean to them, how does it fit theologically with the rest of the book, how do we understand it, how do we apply it? And those principles of hermeneutics are what's key to studying any book of the Bible. Now keeping that in mind, the second and maybe more compelling point to to the futurist view is what we call the nature of prophetic literature. All I'm saying is, in the Old Testament, there, there, some have chronicled 600 plus prophecies about the Christ. That sounds like a big number. Let's just say 100 for a round number. Very easy to find 100. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, those two passages alone will keep you up at night. Those two passages predicted the suffering and the torment of Christ. You read Isaiah 53 and about the crucifixion. How did, was anything else in mind besides the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53? These prophecies came true in Christ. Isaiah 7, the, the virgin will bear a child and call his name Emmanuel. The fulfilled prophecies. Let's just say there's a hundred of them. Reformers, Catholics, Baptists, Presbyteros, all of us, Presbyterians, all of us would say those are pretty clear prophecies that Christ came. Agreed? The nature of prophetic literature was it came in a time when it meant something in a context, but it meant something different and fulfilled when Christ came. There's one interpretation, many applications, and they unfold as time goes on. Now, if that's true of the Old Testament, which my Reformed friends would all say, amen. When you come to the New Testament, why do we change the paradigm? If we have prophetic literature in the New Testament, why do we interpret it any differently than we did the prophecies about the Christ? So the nature of prophetic literature is we're always looking in the context it's written to the audience who received it, but we're asking the question, what does that mean going forward? All these prophecies in the Old Testament were about what? The person and work of Jesus Christ. Duh. All these prophecies in Revelation are about what? The person and work of Jesus Christ. This book is a whole. This book is a unit that's otherworldly. And to dissect it differently, I think, does injustice to the Bible. Charles Ryrie writes, each book of the Bible is important. But the last book has the added significance of being the consummation and climax 
of God's revelation. The book of Revelation is especially significant because it concerns things which must soon take place. We would not know many of these things if the book of Revelation were not in the Bible. That's a dust statement of the day. We wouldn't know about end times, a millennial scheme, the second coming of Christ, the, 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 the millennial scheme debates that we have, the, the great harlot, the, the, the eternal abyss, Satan's minions, the fight at the so-called location of Armageddon, which isn't a location, but nevertheless, we would know none of that. We'd be left on our own to wonder, what's this look like in the end? He continues, um, it is the major, but not only, prophetic book in the New Testament. John was commanded not to seal the book, meaning that it was open for people to hear and read. And those who read it are promised a special blessing. Apparently, therefore, the book was expected to be understandable and helpful to those who read it. It is an apocalypse, literally a revelation, designed not to mystify but to clarify. And one of the challenges we have, because we're a culture that no longer reads... We find information in very short snippets. We prefer to watch it on YouTube rather than read it in a book. And because we don't read, we don't study, it's just, it's just our culture, it's our reality. We are not willing to spend a little sweat to wade through it. Look at Ryrie's last line. Designed not to mystify, but to clarify. The book of Revelation is included in your Bible so that you will not wonder what happens next. Okay, Christ went to heaven. We're waiting for his return. Well, Revelation tells us about his return. That's the beauty and the power of the book. Now, before we jump into the first three verses, very briefly, let me give you a couple of resources. Number one, uh, two books by John Walvoord. John Walvoord um, was known during the 70s as one of the leading prophetic writers. And Walvoord is not a, he's not a sensationalist. Walvoord is a guy who marshals the different views. So if you like this stuff about the different views, he's going to expand that a lot further. Um, he's, he's a 12th grade education writer. So this, you, it's not going to be an easy book to read, but it's not unattainable. And if you want to know how to get some, some of the, the little picky issues and complex issues, Walver's going to show you, like, these are the five common views and explain why uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He also has a commentary, two different books, uh, a commentary on Revelation that was updated recently as part of a, a series of all the books. He was a prolific writer in the 70s. And, and so this is a, a, the newest book they put out with um, Hitchcock and um, Raleigh, and it's available. The third resource is Ron Rhodes, 40 Day Through Revelation. And uh, Ron's a, a personal friend. I've known him for 30 plus years, a brilliant mind. You know the name Ravi Zacharias? Ravi is one of the most brilliant apologetic guys on the planet, right? Ron Rhodes is the Ravi for every man. Ron Rhodes speaks to the rest of us. And Ron writes, uh, very easy to grasp. I started this book about four or five weeks ago, and it's very easy. Ron gives you a little setup. He explains it very simply. Then he says, read these verses, pray about it, ask God to help you. And then he has some guiding questions. So it's, it's like a Bible study methodology book. And it's very easy to do. You can do a, a, probably 15 to 30 minutes, depending on your interest level. Um, it's not super deep. But it's a real good resource if you want to get an overview in a month and 10 days on the book of Revelation. Finally, Bible.org. Bible.org is a website that has tens of 
thousands of free resources. Um, in the book of Revelation alone, they have all of John MacArthur's messages. They've got um, a guy named Keith Krell. It's a very good writer, very, very uh, helpful writer. Tommy Nelson, some of you know the name Tommy Nelson from Denton Bible Church. Bill McRae, who's a, another uh, friend of mine. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson, one of the, the greatest theologians in the last century. Uh, S. Lewis passed away a few years ago. Brilliant man who taught at Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas, out of the Greek text. A classicist guy, grew up in Alabama, uh, knew all the classic languages before he came to Christ. 13, 14 languages fluently. Brilliant cat with a very thick southern accent. So you can, you, you'll, you'll identify with him, is what I'm saying. Um, all of his audios on there, all of the PDFs are on there. S. Lewis is a brilliant man. Um, uh, Ray Steadman, on and on it goes. They're all free. Ken Boa, if you know Dr. Boa, they're all free, and you can knock yourself out. So if you have, what, what in the world are the seals? You go there, search seals, revelation, you'll, you'll be dizzy. You'll find so much information, all free. Let's take a look at the text. Would you stand with me? Let's read the first three verses together. Let's read it well. It is the word of God. You can read from the screen or from the numeric standard if you prefer in your hand. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his servant, servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads these words and hears the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in them, for the time is near. Thank you. You did better than I did. Thank you. You can be seated. The title is taken from the first three Greek words, akapolupsis, apocalyptic, apocalypsis, Iesu Christu, the revelation, the unveiling, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. Most of your Bibles say the revelation of John. It's a, it's a gloss. The first three words technically are the revelation of the person, Jesus Christ. Um, revelation is not that hard of a word. It just means to disclose something, to fully disclose it, to reveal it. And as we read in Ryrie's quote, I believe, it wasn't to be sealed. This is a revelation to be available to everyone. And you know enough of the story that there are some books that are sealed until a certain time. This one's open for the public, we would say. It's free for all to take a look at. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the full disclosure of him. And it's interesting when we wonder about what would Christ do. Remember the phase everybody had the what would Jesus do bracelets and bangles and you know, bungees and bumper stickers and all this kind of stuff. Um, what would Jesus... I, I always think it should, should have been WWJT. What would Jesus think? Not what he would do. What would he think? That's a whole new... You can market that. No charge. Um, but, but the point here is we're going to disclose everything about Jesus you need to know. That ought to make us pay attention. The Gospels give us the account of his death, burial, uh, resurrection, that he came to pay for your sin and mine, all that he said, the Beatitudes the commissioning of the disciples, the uproom discourse in John, all this great information. But we're wondering, well, what's next, Lord? Well, this is what's next. This is answers that question. It's communicated from God through Christ, sent and communicated by his angel. Now, this his angel keeps scholars up at night. Um, the, the simple answer is we don't know who the reference is. Some think it's Gabriel. 
And there's some appeal to that. In Daniel, uh, in, in the Old Testament book of Daniel, he's named a number of times. More importantly, in Luke chapter 126 and following, the angel comes, to, who does he come to? Who does Gabriel come to? Comes to Mary. What's he telling Mary? You're going to have a child. So Gabriel is dispatched as the one who announces the coming of Messiah. So there's an attraction to the story that this would be Gabriel that he's coming to announce the return of Messiah. Now for those people that got to know the name of the angel, that's as good as it gets. You're on your own after that. It doesn't really matter, but that's a point people worry a lot about. The broader point is John was given a message to communicate to his bondservants, a term we're familiar with from Paul's language, the doulos, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a willing indentured bondservant. What's the point? I made myself a slave to Christ. Yes, I was called as an apostle, but he leads with a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And that's the image we want to have. We have a master. We're not the master. This isn't self-actualization, men and women. This isn't all about me. This isn't all about my kingdom, my empire, my plans, my goals, my dreams. A maturing Christian understands this is about serving a savior. My life was bought with a price. I'm to honor the one who bought it and redeemed me from hell. And so I willingly enslave myself. Remember in the Old Testament, a slave in the year of Jubilee, if he didn't want to leave, if he loved his master, his master loved him, he could put his ear on the, that's the first biblical piercing. He could pierce his earlobe on the doorpost. And that was a, that was a rich symbolism of the doorpost was part of the house, the, the tribe, the clan, the mezuzahs are put there for the law. And so he's going to have his, his ear blood pierced. I'm identified. I'm a willing servant. I could have been set free. I love my master so much, I'm going to serve him. It doesn't get any better than this. That's a willing, indentured servant. And here, the letter is written to bondservants. Are you a bondservant? See, your master. This is a hard one. One of the challenges of an affluent culture, and by the way, we are an affluent culture, is we rest on a lot of our accomplishments. Not saying they're bad, but the danger of depending upon them and not understanding we have a master who's allocated to us things that we can use and take advantage of and bless others with and enjoy. But he's the master. We're not the master. And that's a hard thing for the American mindset. We are bond servants. Verse 2, who testified to the testimony. And this is another Christian word. Maybe it doesn't bother you. It always bothers me. I, I don't know why when someone says, let's hear a testimony. I just get all kind of King James all of a sudden. It's just kind of like... Do I have to pray in thee and thou's and tones of stained glass? I just, it's just kind of a creepy word to me. Let's have a testimony. Let's have a testimony time. Now, let me encourage you with all Bible words. Erase your mindset of what you think of that word. Think of it empirically. What is a testimony? If you've ever been deposed or if you've ever had to be a witness in a court of law, what are you doing? You're telling what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know. That's giving your testimony. So reframe that testimony lingo that we have as Christians and say, it's not about, I got to give my testimony and I got to get all the points just right and share with, so people come to Christ, which is great. I'm not trying to mock that, but it's what you've seen and heard. I love the first epistle that John writes about what we've seen, 
what we've ha- our hands have handled, what we've heard, we pass him on to you. It's almost like he took all the senses that we have. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him, we've handled him, our hands have handled him, and we give him to you. It's a beautiful picture. What do you know? What have you seen? What have you heard? You know what? I was a 15-year-old drug delinquent, licentious young jerk of a boy. And Christ saved me. And within a very short span of time, I never touched or abused substances again. I was changed. I swear I was changed. God changed me. I didn't do it myself. I didn't go to rehab. I didn't go to a treatment center. Nothing like that happened to me. God said, I'm taking you from death into life. He also gave me a conscience that I didn't have before. I was very aware of sin. I was very aware of how arrogant and proud and stupid I was as a teenager. And I felt miserable about it. And God's Holy Spirit convicted me. I don't want to be this way anymore. He said, good, I'll help you. And he changed me and transformed me. Nobody can take that away from me. I've seen it. I've heard it. I've experienced it. And a lot of you can tell the same kind of story with different experiences. You were going one way, you met, had a personal encounter with Christ, and he changed you, and you're going another way. And your life has never been the same. Are we all growing at the rate and ratio we hope? No, of course not. But are we different than we were? Yes. That's a testimony that no one can take from you. We're eyewitnesses to it. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Intriguing that this is the only book in the Bible that makes this statement. It makes it twice. If you read it and keep it, read it and heed it, read it and obey it, you will be blessed. Look carefully for just a moment at the three features of this. He who reads. It's singular here. This is a little detail, but hang with me. It's singular here. He who reads it. And the time it was written, when it goes to these seven churches in counterclockwise fashion, uh, someone's reading the letter. There's not multiple copies. There's no machine. There's no way to scan it and send it through email or text and distribute it. It's read aloud and people heard it for a long time before it was ever put in print and copied and distributed. He who reads it is blessed. That's singular. Those who hear it is now plural. The audiences in those seven churches were many. So those who heard it and thirdly implied those who heed it or obey it or listen to it, some of your Bibles say, Uh, It's the present tense each time, so an ongoing activity. What's he saying? The one who reads it, the one who hears it, the one who keeps it or obeys it will be blessed. This is a promise. You read this book. Again, back to our hermeneutic, why we take this from a futurist perspective. The first century only heard it. You can read it now. You can read it on a device in the back of your pocket or purse that can run the space shuttle. You can read it in the old-fashioned way, in a real book Bible. You can read it on your computer screen at home. Anybody can read it. What an amazing thing. You hear it. We read it aloud. We heard it. The question is, do we keep it? Do we obey it? Do we follow it? For the time is near. Five times in Daniel, he uses a similar phrase, obviously not in Greek. And then we read about it again in Revelation 22.10, for the time is near. There's anticipation here. There's a future happening. Now, one of the problems with when Scripture talks about the time is near, it's imminent, is I think the disciples thought Christ was going to return in their lifetime. 
And we have every indication of that. Conjecture on my part. I think when John was on Patmos transcribing this by the inspiration of God's spirit, I think he thought it would happen in his lifetime. The time is near. It's human. It's soon. It's going to happen soon. Our view of soon is different than a biblical view of soon. We call it the prophetic future. In the grand scheme of things, when Isaiah is written 700 plus years before the Christ is born, that doesn't seem too soon. Prophetically, it's very soon. Again, illustration only stands on three legs at best. I view human history as a one-inch piece of linear string from the moment God created Adam to when the chapter 22 of Revelation is completed and mankind stops as we know it. A one-inch piece of string is all of our linear timeline in existence. And God's eternality is an immeasurable sphere beyond that one-inch piece of string. Prophetically speaking, it's near. Linear, the way we live, it seems like forever. But we really don't live that long. Our time is really short. No want to get maudlin, but our time is, is pretty quick. This is called the doctrine of eminency, the eminent return of Christ. The old hymn, it may be morning, it may be noon, it may be someday, maybe soon, he's coming again. That was the imminent doctrine of Christ. We're to live as though he's coming any day, but we don't know when. Matthew 25, 13, be on the alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. But then in Acts 1, 7, he says to his disciples, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He's coming again, but we're not going to tell you. Seems like a trick. Last week, if you heard Lindsay's interview, she mentioned her father finding out he had a terminal illness and that he considered it a blessing because he changed his life. And we kind of get that, right? If you knew, I mean, you talk to many of your physicians in the healthcare system, if you knew you had a particular type of cancer, let's say, and you could go through all the radiation and chemo and experimental drugs and drugs that don't have names like OKT3. You take all these medications. We might extend you maybe six months, four, four, maybe 10 months, maybe a year. You're going to be really sick that whole time. Or you make a decision not to do it. If you have a good oncologist, you go to him or her and say, you know, what, what, what should I do? And after the shell shock and some reading and time, you go back and visit them. And they say, well, here's the protocols. With your cancer, we can probably, you know, 85% do this. What if they said, you know what? There's nothing really we can do. We can throw all these Hail Marys, but it might, it might give you a few months. And then you ask the one question you want the answer to. Doc, what would you do? And he or she says, you know, if it was me, I'd go for it. If it was me, I'd, I'd go home. I'd enjoy my family while I could. I would travel. I'd go see people I needed to see. Take a crew. Do something that's really going to make a memory. Well, Lindsay's dad had that view. I'm going to go do something. Now, everyone of us in here, we don't like to talk about this, but if we had that news, we would probably start living differently, wouldn't we? I hate to admit it, I would. You see, this is a very bad theological joke. No one ever laughs at it. My wife doesn't laugh at it. I made it up. That's why it doesn't work. I believe in the imminent return of Christ, just not in my life. See, nobody laughed. It's a very bad joke. I believe he's coming at some point. I just don't live like it. Now, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty or bad. Why? Our life is not our own. We were bought with a price. We're slaves to a master, a good and kind master. 
Our life is his, not ours. We're to live for his glory and honor, not for our kingdom and our empire and our name. Boy, that's a message in this town, isn't it? We're to live for him. And we're to live that he might be coming any day. Interesting challenge, isn't it? The prologue does a number of things. It establishes the divine authority and the author. It tells us this is the very word of God. You know, I, I guess I'm getting old and, you know, you know me. I mean, this is seven years that we've been here now. You know me well enough by now. You know you can take about 80% of what I say and dismiss 20. You know that, right? Say yes. Just say yes. You can do You can do, I'm not inerrant, you know. You don't have to. And you get to pick what 20 you disagree with. Um, in my lifetime, I've never seen the loss of biblical literacy and knowledge like it is today. We just don't read it. We don't study it. We don't care. Because, in no small part, I can find the answer in 10 seconds here. I'm telling you, though, everybody who has an answer on here isn't right. I listened to the public radio has a thing called This American Life, and they had a special on social media with teenage girls in particular. Snapchat, Instagram, the way they primarily communicate. It's the most disheartening thing I've heard in a year about social media. The drive, the obsession, the compulsion, the popularity issues, the depression issues, the self-harming issues, all because of the stupid device. With our teenage girls in particular was this interview. And the thing that caught me about it, I, 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 I don't have a love-hate with social media. I hate it. I have to be involved with it, but I still hate it. The other day, I posted a picture of food. I thought, easily, you have just hit the absolute bottom of the barrel of social media. You are a disgusting human being that you put a picture of what you ate on social media. You idiot. You've arrived. You're an imbecile. What is it about this stupid stuff? Now, the power is great. Don't get me wrong. The, the, the stuff I showed you today, I mean, it's, it's wonderful how it can be used for good. But let me just ask the question. If I'm a bondservant of Christ and time is short, does any of this help me becoming more like the master? Maybe it does. You young men and women who are so obsessed about your post and your likes and what people say about you, this is what you need to be concerned about, what he says about you. He loves you. He cares about you. More than your stupid friends who put likes or OMG. We've been deluded, men and women. This is a revelation about the Christ who is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God who's coming again. And he's coming to wipe away every tear to take away all cancer, to address all ills, all injustices, all pains, all, all self-esteem issues, all depression issues, all fame and fortune issues. He's going to wipe them away in a second. And when he shows up, believe me, you're not going to be worried about your ratings on social media or your P&L statement. You're going to be paying attention to him. We all are. Every knee is going to bow. And I'm not saying we're going to get this worked out 
in an hour. I'm asking the question. What's it going to take to recalibrate your life to be a little more about Christ and a little less about yourself? It's really not that hard of a book. As Ryrie said, it was written for clarity, not confusion. But it takes a little effort. Blessed is he who reads these and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are written for the time is near. Father, we do love you. We understand that faithful living places us in a posture for blessing. We don't expect blessing, but this word tells us if we read it and keep it, obey it, follow it, we will be blessed. Blessing in ways we don't quite understand or appreciate, unfortunately. Blessing in ways that are eternal, that are spiritual, that so overpass, exceed our imagination, humanly speaking. We're loved, we're forgiven, we're cared for. We're forgiven again and again and again. We've been given mercy. You're patient beyond measure. You love us in ways we will never comprehend. You call, you beckon, you're available the way we view things. Help us to be transformed more and more to be the image of Christ. You paid for our sin. You redeemed us. You made us white as snow. You've called us your own. Help us to live like it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.